Hello, welcome to the second part of the Richard Martin interview. When we finished speaking last time, we we're about to tackle the subject of script editors. They were, uh, my famous thing was they would always come via a script editor. And one of the script editor's prime duties was to pull down a script, if it was one that was accepted, into a, 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 a doable um, two days in, the st- in one studio. And perhaps, good Lord, what a, what a, what a, uh, um, uh, what a treat! Two days filming for the out, <laughs> for the outside bits, and then you had the problem that the outside bits l- were looked photographically different from the inside bits, and you were told to go to a close up, so nobody would notice and all this. <laughs> I, I just wanted to to, to 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 explode, and I thought it should explode, and it could explode. My God, it has exploded. Mm. Um, sometimes to the detriment of of of, of the power. Uh, of of the thing because much though I love the actress who played Doctor Who recently, I still maintain that he should have been a a dangerous and timeless old man, not not a young sexy person. I that that was perfect. That that that's Sid Sid's uh, invention and it was right. Mm-hmm. The little man coming out of the uh, of the uh, of the police box. Uh, can't be bettered, and he was, of course, um, started life as a, a, a as a draftsman. Uh, Sid was a was a brilliant draftsman, and I think he 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 drew cartoons and things, and he so he had a very strong physical imagination. He also, I don't know if you know this, knew all and could have cared less for uh, British uh, culture uh, in terms of uh, of. Um, of writers and things, he if you if you if you said to him, uh, Dickens, and he said, "What you know? Who's Dickens?" Almost, he he really neither knew nor cared for 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 classical for literature, English literature. He was a purely a visual man, I think, and a, and a, and a, a, a entrepreneurial, uh, sometimes genius. I had to do, <laughs> I had to do a second. Uh, children's thing for him called Quick Before You Catch Us and it was disaster they got the wrong directors they got the wrong writers uh, wrong producers rather and it was absolutely awful and we all had to <laughs> I tried to make it it was based you know everything about it no, uh, no. Right. He, he, he had the idea that, that, that he'd, dis- he'd found that in uh, Bristol, you know, there's an a, a 18th century camera obscura, uh, and it has wonderful shots of the uh, of the city. You can revolve the top, and you get the the city projected by a mirror onto the floor. And he said, "Why don't we have one of these in the East End of London?" And it absolutely derelict thing, and it's it's uh, found by a whole load of kids, and they start to spy on the neighbourhood. 
and see all the things that they shouldn't see happening. It was a lovely idea. The first thing we should have done was been a, built a, uh, a camera obscura in Camberwell, you know. Then we could have gone on from there. But the difficulty I had trying to make camera obscura work in in uh, Lime Grove, when those those cameras, you couldn't tilt them more than 30 degrees up, 30 degrees down. More than that, the, uh, the um, target area uh, fell forward onto the grid of the camera. It was they were they were not made to move, and they were made they were portrait cameras, you know, and so to get a a, a camera obscura shot and some high any high shots, you had to use mirror and reverse the. I believe you me, it takes so much studio time because you did that in the web planet. I noticed there's uh, there's uh, the shots that are seemingly. From above, of yeah. walking into the, yeah. I think it's the Minoptera graveyard or oh, something. Oh yeah, I, I try to use it as much as possible, but it is very time-consuming. Now you've got cameras the size of your thumbnail. <laughs> you say, "Pop out there and take a shot." <laughs> they take you, you know. Ah, if we had those, you know, we could have started to really work. Anyway, that was an awful. Um, I was going to tell you the story. It's got nothing to do with this, so you won't use it. But it's it's quite funny. Um, we all went in to see Sid Newman after this appalling pilot of uh, Quick Withdrawal Catchers. I can't, I, mercifully, I've forgotten the name of the producer. He was a prat. <laughs> um, and uh, Sid tore us off a strip and then turned to me and said, Why are you making it so f***ing see me? I don't want to see me, slowly. And I, I had uh, made the script as realistic as possible, as as East End as possible, um, because I, uh, that's that's what it needed. It needed it needed some reality since it was based in the East End of London. You couldn't have little middle class people saying, "Oh, I say, look at that naughty thief." Uh, but anyway, I, and I said to her, "Sorry, sorry, I didn't know that we." Uh, we were trying to do um, Swallows and Amazons. And I could see his eyes totally glazed. He had no idea at all what Swallows and Amazons or Amazons and Swallows and who swallowed the Amazon. <laughs> and he said, what the f***? It was terrible. <laughs> he turned away from me. And <laughs> General Savory was a great friend of mine uh, who was then head of, uh, head of the serials uh, and a wily old bird if ever there was one with a wonderful, naughty sense of humour. And we came away, and he just squeezed my arm and said, wicked one about swallows and Amazons. I didn't know I'd been funny. <laughs> I didn't know I'd been naughty at all. I said it absolutely straight, because if we'd done swallows and Amazons, I would have done it as a period piece, and, you know, swallows and Amazons. Anyway, that was, the, that was that Sid, you see. That, so that Sid at his, at his best and worst. But did the com did the public service broadcaster, the BBC, need a sort of commercial edge to it to make it? Oh, everybody relevant? thought so, and that's what that's why Sid was brought in. Did you think so? I didn't have any preconceived notion. I think. Um, you know, everybody called it the old brown bee, but I did. did I, I had a terrible job getting into it as a producer, as a director. Uh, you know, I said, look, I've done this amount of time as an actor. I've now directed here and here and here and here and here. But there was a man called Elliot. He was very, very much the Oxford-Cambridge, the Oxbridge thing. 
And if you weren't Oxbridge, you didn't get in. And he died, and his uh, uh, um, his name was Rutherford, and he was a lovely man, and he'd been an actor. He'd been a long time server at the BBC. And at that time, I was directing uh, Corin Redgrave in Henry V at, at uh, Guildford, which was, you know, quite a nice thing to... Uh, they, he did say, come and come and have an interview. It's the first interview I had. And I started off the interview by saying, I'm awfully sorry, I can't, uh, I can't stay for long because I've got a whole lot of actors. They said, where? I said, well, at Guildford, I've got Corin Redgraves, uh, and we're in the second week of rehearsal. You know, it's terribly important. And that, without meaning to be arsy, was probably got me in, you know. <laughs> they asked me a few silly questions, and, and I, I got in. But until then, until... Uh, Rutherford said, yes, come and have an interview. I, I would, there was no hope. So that is a long, complicated and stupid way of saying, yes, I think the BBC needed shaking up and needed Sid, and Sid certainly um, produced a whole load of new thinking and new ideas. Ted Kocheff, um and um, Jackie's husband, uh, the, the lovely Alvin Rakoff, were the first commercial directors to come in and do the big stuff uh, from from outside and Ted of course who'd been a brilliant cameraman in Canada was the first person to ever show uh, uh, the uh, the, uh, um, <laughs> the the camera boys how you could actually track on a 16 uh, degree lens and they said no no you don't track uh, if you if you want to move a camera it has to be 35 mil 35 degree uh, minimum uh, 24, just a little move, but, but 16, no way. And he pushed the guy out of his way and said, this is how you do it. And he got on the camera, gave it a good shove with his hand, with his foot, and rode the camera halfway across the studio and made a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful shot. And that went round the building, round that thing, like, like it was the linear accelerator. Mm. You know, everybody, and, and few people said, you know, they, they'd knocked the, 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 the stuffing out and the stuffiness out of the cameramen, most of whom, I have to say, were extremely brilliant. You know, caring, loving, and most of them wanted to do Doctor Who because they found it quite exciting. They found it a bit better than just taking portraits. Uh, and they, they came on board, I found, on the whole. Well, and if you look at something like the Dalek Invasion of Earth, I mean, the stuff that you have on on film is obviously is is, is extraordinary. I mean, you see, you 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 really embrace that idea of getting deserted London and making it spooky and then excite. Early on, when you've got the Robo Men being very slow and walking in unison, and um, Kenton Moore jumping into the into the I don't know. If it's, I think it's Peter Diamond takes over for the actual jump into the Thames. But that's a great opening scene. Yeah. The sort of the suicide, which I mean, suicide is something even now Doctor Who would bulk at uh, portraying. I think. So, did you enjoy going out onto the streets uh, of London and doing all that sort of? That's what it was about. Guerrilla stuff, almost. That's what it was about. Those, those, that time, that incredible day when we started at midnight at Trafalgar Square and worked our way down Whitehall. Um. What was uh, and then we went to too late. By the time I got to the Albert Hall, there were too many people about, uh, and I couldn't. You see, I hadn't got the facilities. Well, I, I did a silly thing. I put a bloody Dalek halfway up the Albert Memorial, 
coming to the edge, and it is very obvious that if he bumble and he'd fall, what it'd be nice if he'd gone on and up and just came down. But they were so unmanoeuvrable, it wasn't true, despite the fact that those were a better sort that I had invented on a kid's tricycle, so they could come over. Uh, we finally got quite a lick on on the uh, one that came over Westminster Bridge, for which, in, incidentally, the operator will never forgive me. He he became, he went back to Australia. Oh, his name now. Robert Jewell. Yeah, right. And he became a weightlifter. And he was interviewed, uh, and somebody came years ago and said to me, he'd, he'd found him and interviewed him, and he he called me uh, uh, a dangerous, stupid director or something. <laughs> because it was dangerous, and there was no... And it was, of course, there was a certain danger. I'm, I've always done dangerous things. And when I, 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 I mean, I shudder now to think of some of the things that... Uh, if I could do it myself, I reckon an actor could do it, or should do it. With, and we were doing a lovely... Uh, Play called One More River at uh, the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry, uh, and I had the the uh, director of productions was playing the captain, and he, he actually walked out onto a plank, and there was the the pit beneath him, the empty open stage, and, it was, and he had a note, uh, rope round his neck, and the only thing that was stopping him hanging was four or five of the actors standing on the other end of the thing. They, you know, I believed that they they wouldn't. Well, however much they felt about their contracts, they wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't make a jump to the left, nor did they. Paddy O'Connell, um, Bran, had faith in me and believed in me and believed in my powers of persuasion and, and did just that, but it was a very dangerous and stupid thing to do because he could have... Just topped himself. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've exceeded the time I promised to take of yours, so I must belt through these uh, questions to get the answer. But mentioning Paddy O'Connell, um, and we mentioned Bernard Kay in the car on the way here, you're very faithful to actors that uh, that you used. In that you, and I mentioned Kenton Moore. I mean, he's uncredited in, and it's a non-speaking part of Dalek of Age of Earth, but he comes back, and I think he's in your Elizabeth R episode, and That's maybe me. Family at War, and you use these actors over and over again. Is that because... Is is that from a behind the camera for a, you're faithful to your friends, or is it that you need people that you know what they're doing? It's the latter. Uh, faithful to my friends, I'm probably not that faithful. For Some of my greatest friends have never worked with me. Um, but if you know an actor can really do it, and you've worked with him over some time, uh, people like Bernie Kay, for example, you know what they're capable of. Um, and you've got a fortnight, sometimes if it's only a week to do something, you go for somebody who knows that they can really do it. Occasionally, and probably um, I was doing it too much, occasionally it's much better. When I went up to Granada for the first time, and I was fairly shocked, I was given a casting director. And uh, she nearly always said, what about so-and-so, what about so-and-so, oh, do meet so-and-so, hey, I know just the actor of so-and-so, all that northern group of actors. So I enlarged my uh, um, repertoire of actors enormously there, more than I ever did at the BBC, because I was working with them, and the BBC now have casting directors, but then they had a casting department which was useless, absolutely 
sad and useless. And uh, so you never used them, I'm afraid. Uh, you, you did your own casting. And, and because you were on your own and because, uh, because I'd worked since a very early age in the theatre and had worked with a hell of a lot of actors, uh, as you read the script, you tend to think, hey, you know, Bernie K could really do that. That's why. And so you leap on from um, uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth to, so that's futuristic London, lots of film outside, to being entirely in studio to do an alien planet with a supporting cast of entirely alien creatures. Um, in another, was this greatly ambitious or was it enormous folly to do something so... Uh, what are you talking uh, the, about? The, the web planet. Yeah, the web planet. With, with the Zabi and the... You've got no guest actor who isn't playing a creature from mm. outer space. Mm. Um, you've got some pre-filming at Ealing, but a lot of it you're doing in, you know, in-studio, multi-camera. Yeah, it was... It, it was um, it was a lovely idea. His sweet, sweet writer, you know his name. Bill Stratton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was he was a lovely man and very humble uh, about it all. He was totally surprised to have been asked to do it, funnily enough. Um, but but the he knew nothing about dialogue, how, how to you know how to construct a, a, a scene or even a sentence. So I was busy rewriting a lot of his stuff. Be quiet, Dorcas. And uh, it was very ambitious. One of the things that was uh, brilliant was the the, uh, the um, rooms coming up on the Monoptra. And that was very complicated. And it had to be mechanics. Mm-hmm. They were two bloody powerful springs, yeah. which they had to wear on their backs. Heavy, unpleasant pieces of mechanics. Uh, with a, a hair trigger, so they could do that. Just, just sort of nudge their thing and pull this string, and out would come these impressive things. But well, we needed many more of those to really, really make it, you know, what it could have and should have been. Um, uh, and it was, it was uh, I don't know whether it was a success or not. I haven't looked at it. It has, it has the marvelous uh, credit at the end, "Insect Movement" by Rosalind de Winter. Which makes it unique, and and so you'd really gone to town to try and had, give alien yeah. quality to the, yeah. to the creatures. Yeah, Ros Ros was a dancer, part dancer, and yeah, I I needed that. I needed the uh, the expertise, and some I needed, you know, somebody to sort of do a golem on it for me. I mean, we had those the wriggly creatures, Jack, God, high camp, very funny. Jack Pitt. Yeah, yeah, Jack Pitt. But the, but we couldn't we couldn't make I couldn't make it look good. I was very I was very disappointed, you know. Especially anything you get slowed down. Once you start pointing the camera in a television studio at the floor you've lost. Because the floors are skating rings. And you can put as much sawdust as you like down on it. Uh, everything you put solid down it, you then can't get the cameras around, so you have to stand back from it. And it was it. You can look at the uh, floor of a a real film studio, and it's gnarled, broken, replaced. It's had things screwed into it. They don't use the floor; they build on the floor. 
And if they want anything to glide over the top of it, they've got the big bills and they can come in and, you know, work on it. But the most we ever had was a three-man crane, and the three-man crane, cumbersome, brilliant piece of equipment, but it takes a long time for those three to talk to each other. to come. And it only... The, the arm of a crane comes in seven feet, something like that. You can only get seven feet towards. So those those creatures who had to walk do on the floor, and, and floor paint looks like floor paint, you know. So it was... I, I, I remember being pretty disappointed in everything but, except for um, the, the flying sequences which we did with Kirby's Flying Valley down at, uh, at uh, Ealing, which was great. Little Inky. Inky was the guy who was a tiny little man. He could fly people. So he manipulated the... Yeah, the from wires. the floor. Far various things. He was, he was the, the prime... Uh, manipulator of, for Kirby's Flying Valley in them days. Now they get people to walk around the cross arch, you know. But that's, that's with this balance thing on the hips. So then it was a much more cumbersome business and quite difficult. And those sequences are great. I mean, they're, they're those film sequences where they're, they're landing and there's a battle. Is it OK? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It could be better. I'm and sure. I, I think that you, you said that you'd invented the the underground dwellers that Ian Thompson and Barbara mm, Joss play. Mm. And you were talking about Bill Stratton not being great with dialogue, and indeed the best dialogue, if that was your invention, is because having had the alien movement for those, the, the larger creatures, for the Optera, they've got alien dialogue in that They talk of making mouths in the walls so that they will speak more light. So you're going to, again, a great sort of effort to, to think of alien thought processes. Yeah. We, we, we invented that almost in the spur of the moment. And Ian Tom was a great friend of mine. We, I, I remember we sort of invented it together. And I seem to remember, maybe a, maybe a, apocryphal rather than true, that I invented it after I'd started rehearsal. There was a, such a big gap in the story. and the, uh, Can I put my dog out? Sure, sure. She's, she's, she's got the ball underneath there. Which we, and we'll, we'll pick up on that. Point actually, because um, you talk about Ian Thompson, who you used um, to stuck underground as an underground cave dweller in uh, in the Web Planet, and then in the chase you cast him as a, a fish a fish man alongside Hewell Bennett. So you, you he may be a friend of yours, but you like sticking him under makeup. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was that was the sort of that was a deal. You had to find people who would be creative. Um, and, and, and think like fish and spiders and uh, I mean one could go f- so far down that road that we simply hadn't time to go otherwise we'd have come up with the golems and things you know but uh, it was just a, a sketch of what could could have been in all cases well the, the chase I mean is, is, is an even more difficult task because um, you have a different location every week which is a very Terry Nation thing and, and sort of quite perils of Pauline and uh, comic strippy, isn't he, that it's a sort yeah. of uh, zipping from one location to the other, yeah. which must have tested poor old Ray Cusick to the limit. Uh, yes, and the budget. And, of course, I always tell people that the rudest, rudest word I know in the English language is omit because Ray and John, whatever the other... John Wood. John Wood, wonderful wonderful creative uh, designer 
And they used to produce these vast drawings, especially John Wood in the Web Planet. And they, they were works of art. They were lovely, exciting things to look at. And they used to then submit them to the costing department. You might as well have submitted them to the SS Tombanfuhrer with saying anti-Nazi. Anything which was at all interesting, it had stamp, omit, 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 because it would have cost too much to make. And um, that was a limiting factor which I used to make me so angry. Is that where your veto yeah. posters come from, a Absolutely. Dalek invasion of Earth? Absolutely. Are you having a go? Thing. Yeah. So nobody, nobody knows. But I know. <laughs> so you've got quite. You're working in this corporation. You've got quite a rebellious streak in you, then. Oh yeah, I think so. I've never. I'm never BBC man, really. I'm proud to have worked at the BBC. Obviously, we fool not to, and they gave me a lot of a lot of chances. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm. I, you see, I'm. I'm non-establishment. A. I'm totally self-educated. If I've got any education at all, it's me. The only education I, I was able to I was I was virtually thrown out of my um, prep school because I, I couldn't even learn the blue perfect of Amor. Um, and so my uh, mother had to find me because she was a, a real enthusiast. She was a, um, a piano teacher, seven and six a lesson down the road here at, at Denham. And uh, she spent every penny that she ever made on our education. We don't have the odd ham sandwich, no, spam sandwich, but the real thing was education. And she was so determined that we would not be part of the, the, of the state education, which I have to say was terrible around here at the time. There was Denham School, which was the dregs. Um, anyway, she then sent me to, uh, uh, they found a school where you didn't have to have common entrance. That was the, you know, you had to be stupid enough. And I, so I went to King Alfred School in Hampstead, which was my making of me, because there I acted. I did a bit of pottery. Uh, <laughs> Think I, I think I learned something. The, the teachers were very good. A certain amount of biology, because I like biology. But apart from anything else, I still can't spell. And I probably, probably gave you the wrong number, because I, I'm a numeral, they tell me, in the matter of, of total indifferences, whether a two comes before a one or not, <laughs> which doesn't help if you're trying to do your... Your, your bank balances or your geometry. Well, talking of teachers, and I was listening to the commentary that you did on the Web Planet, and you mentioned that Jolyon Booth, you'd offered him a job, and he'd said, I'm going off to become a teacher. And then you said you weren't sure if he ever made it, but you assumed that he would. I've been in touch with him, and I know for a fact, because a friend of mine from university went to Winchester School, where he was taught by Jolyon Booth. So he did go off and become a teacher. At Winchester. He yeah. said he hoped to to, to rise very, very smartly within those. <laughs> so he did just that. Well he done did. for Jolion. Nice man. And a good actor too. He's a good yeah, performance in yeah, the web planet. He's got a lot of character in there. Yes, the, yeah, he's no fool. 
And so, moving beyond Doctor Who, very very quickly said that we're not just being very parochial. Um, when you went to, um, although he says, I'm now going to bring it back to Doctor Who, when you did um, Elizabeth R, you worked with Patrick Troughton, so William mm. Hartnell's not the only Doctor that you worked with, even though yeah. he was the only one you did Doctor Who with. Yeah. So, and, and because William Hartnell had, you know, was the original Doctor and the template of Doctor Who, do you think Patrick had the right qualities for the Doctor? He made him a bit whimsy, didn't he? It was, uh, although I'm a recorder player myself, I thought that that wasn't necessary. I couldn't have, shouldn't have played the recorder. He could have played the nose flute or something stranger. Um, he was a little lightweight, although I, I, I was a great admirer of, uh, of his. He was a, um, resourceful and uh, quite mysterious actor, and he'd pull things out of the bag. I liked I liked working with him very much, but I think his Doctor Who was. I don't know. Yeah, it had its points, had its moments. He could never be bad. He could never be dull. But he was a little, a little, little too gentle. There wasn't the, there wasn't the danger that there was with Billy. Billy was dangerous, and any good actor has, I think, danger is one of the great, great, great gifts that any actor has to give. You can have sensitiveness. You can have. You should have, and 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 and, and uh, receptiveness, but danger. That I, that thing that actually this lovely kind human being could just actually lose it. Could just eat their babies. You know, <laughs> that's that's the moment when when you it, it grips you, and and the actors I've on the whole that I've worked with. Uh, most are the ones who are a bit dangerous, not too dangerous. Uh, I won't work with some of them too. <laughs> <laughs> and so what have been your highlights of your career, would you say, then? I did William and Mary, which is one of the best things I've ever done, and I did it very well, and there's no record of it or sign of it left, of course. Uh, Donald Sindon, Andre van Geisigam, Brenda Bruce, the fourth actor's name, I sadly forget, played the small part. But that, and lovely Harry Moore, who again is sadly no longer with us, produced it. He's the sort of producer I really like. So I did that, and I was very pleased with that. Another Harry Moore I did was a thing called um, Black Exchange, written by a man called Patrick Kerwin. A communist, and he he was he was sent as a communist agitator to uh, the Wehrmacht Republic to try and try and um, foster communism in a in a decaying um, society, and he wrote a novel about it called The Black Exchange, which is wonderful. Um, that was good, and um, that was as I wanted it. Enough filming. Always enough. If there's enough filming, you know, you get it right. I did a thing which was nearly brilliant and was a total disaster, which was the only time I would did and would ever, ever do again live television, which was called The Passenger with Margaret Tysack. And there, there I had enough filming because it was about uh, a, a very uh, stressed woman who'd just come from her mother's funeral getting into a very lonely train, being told by the only other passenger that there was a, a maniac on the loose, 
who then gets out and a man gets in and the train goes on. <laughs> and it, that was live television and, was, and I had enough. I managed to persuade, it was Harry Moore again, uh, the, the producer to allow me to, to do some filming and found a very remote little train to come into a station. This woman get out, woman get on, uh, the man get on. Uh, and uh, while I was doing it, I had took endless shots from the train so that I had live uh, film of, of passing things so that exact moments when she was too frightened to look at this man and said, oh, look at the cows, and there would be cows, you know. So a very specific, mm -hmm. two, two projectionists, two uh, back projection machines, uh, a live carriage, carriage being moved about here, and Bernard played the first cue. What's his name? Bernard. Uh, uh, Bernard Lee. Bernard Lee. Bernard Lee. Terrible difficulty uh, keeping him off the booze during rehearsal. He was an alcoholic. But he had stopped boozing for 48 hours before. He was so frightened <laughs> that we came to the bit where we were cut onto film and saw this train arrive and the, 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 the passengers get off and the passengers get on, Bernard didn't wait for it. He, he, saw, he saw Phyllis getting, getting out of the train and got in and started the, the scene. So we were on film going out and Bernard was into the scene and I got this plaintive thing from, from the floor saying, Bernard's in the carriage. I said, get him out, get him out, get him out. <laughs> got another 30 seconds to go. He hasn't got in. He's on the platform, still on the... And they said, we can't stop him. We can't stop him. He's too frightened. Yeah. From then on, nothing, nothing worked. Nothing well worked. She went, she said, cows, five, four, three, two, one, leader uh, going past. Ah, uh, I can't tell you. And this was totally live. That so you was can... live, live, live. And I met the guy, John, John uh, who I who I trained with, lovely John. Uh, Name's go. Director. Yes, John Gorry. John Gorry. John Gorry. We were great mates, and we. I, I was. I. I crept in to the into the canteen as quietly as possible the following day and helped myself. And got a squeeze on the arm, and John Goy said, "Loved your clever thing about trains." <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh dear! Anyway, um, that was it. Was it could have been, could have been wonderful. Anyway, he, that was that was good. It was potentially very good. Uh, the best thing I ever made was a thing called the Hickler, which was uh, for Granada Television. On, on film, totally on film, uh, and it was a film. And it was in part of a series, Country Matters, uh, and was produced by a, a brilliant little punter called Derek Granger, mm -hmm. who was came my second most favorite director. Not that he wouldn't shout and lose his temper, but he was brilliant. And you, is there anyone with brilliance, you say yes. You know, I, I I can put up with temperament. I can put up with bad temper. I'd rather have bad temper. I can lose my temper, but yeah, but somebody's brilliant. You say yes. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. Let's do it. 
uh, and that was good. That was very good. I made uh, a nice film called Our Young Mr. Whitney, uh, which is a comedy up at Granada. We did some moments of a thing called Adam Smith with Andy Kerr, mm -hmm. some bits of which were top. Uh, you know, you know when you hit it right. You don't. I didn't often hit it right, but you, you, there were bits. Bits were just a mess, but some were good. Um, I did some part of. Uh, I did. I did just one episode of Family at War, which was. We, we shot off the end of Flandino Pair. Nearly caused a riot. Yes, the, the, the tide uh, across the head of Flandino Pier is about nine knots. We're doing it at night, lighting it from the end of the pier with, with uh, arcs. And we had the, 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 the uh, lifeboat moored out, uh, but obviously being tossed. And uh, we every so often to supplement the real actors who had to make the lifeboat, and then we had the sequence in the lifeboat. We were throwing dummies out <laughs> with with their their uh, life jackets on, and one of them got loose. We had a a couple of boats downstream, fishing them out of the river, but you, but you couldn't you couldn't see all. It was pitch black, pitch pitch black outside our lights. One went round the headland. And uh, the Coast Guard were being inundated with uh, requests to go and save these people. And <laughs> we were not in anybody's very good books, but it was, that was good filming. And Ron, what's that lovely little... Um, Pember. Pember. Ron Pember was one of the guys in the lifeboat. And he didn't tell me until we were on the pier at night. He said, you know, I'm doing this, Rich. He said, I'm frightened. I, I have aquaphobia. I can't swim. I said, oh. uh, could you do it? He said, I've got to do it. That's why I'm doing it. I've got to do it. And by the time he arrived at the lifeboat, they had to haul him back in. His teeth were chattering. His eyes were rolling. Because I didn't have a camera out there to take that. I was shooting the next day. I was out there with him. He was still feeling pretty ill. We were all sick, actually. I, we went on. I was so excited by what I was filming. I, I had the lifeboat, and I, we were in, in a couple of sort of low puntish things by the side, filming, going round the thing. And um, I, 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 I suddenly, the, my, my PA said, uh, Rich, you got all you want to. I said, I'd quite like a one man. He said, well, we've just lost sight of land. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't felt sick at all. Everybody in my bed, I sat man was puking over the side but still holding the broom. I was so excited by what we were doing. And that's a good sequence. I think that encapsulates the fact that as a director you like to push the boat out. I think, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think. I don't, I don't play safe. Yeah, now, one last story, lovely uh, director, uh, no, I remember in a minute. We were drinking one day in, in the bar, only a Bane man, and he said, I always keep a spare sh two shot up my sleeve, don't you, Richard? I said, No. 
<laughs> if I've got a spare camera, I'm doing something dangerous with you. Very foolish, the boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been very foolish allowing me into your home because I've taken up far too much of your time. So I'm just going to ask you the final two questions. Number one is you've given your time and nobody's paid for this. So what is the charity that you'd like to benefit from your kind contribution to this project of mine? Children in need. Excellent. A good choice. And Doctor Who, we meet because Doctor Who is 50 this year. Uh, it started the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, when that happened, you were probably working on Doctor Who. Were you were getting getting ready for yeah, it. Everybody says, I know where I was when when Kennedy was assassinated, and I don't. I probably was, yes. Immersed in Doctor Who. So what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who are listening on this 50th anniversary? Oh, keep watching. I, it is... It, 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 by the way it has been regenerated and by the enthusiasm and courage with which the writers have, have and, the, and the actors and the directors have taken it on, it is one of those eternals. I see no reason why it should ever pall because it can be and will be always different and therefore I wish you well and happy viewing. Well, then I wish you uh, happy viewing when you watch An Adventure in Space and Time because you you are portrayed in it by somebody else. So you'll have that unique thing of being able to see... A- an actor I train, too. Ian Hallard. <laughs> How funny. So it comes full circle. And I, I talked to him on the telephone. He said, I'm not, I'm not giving I'm not giving a imitation. I said, you bloody fool, why not? <laughs> he said, I can't remember what you look like. I said, well, keep your eyes open in future. <laughs> Well, you've been great company. You've been very, very um, patient and enthusiastic and helpful. So all I can say is, Richard Martin, thank you very much indeed. My entire pleasure. My thanks to Richard. Uh, He's just so infectiously enthusiastic and I think one of my favourite people to talk to and indeed listen to about Doctor Who. His charity is Children in Need, which is at www.childreninneed, all one word, dash donations.co.uk. That's www.childreninneed, all one word, all small case, dash donations.co.uk. I'd love to do a trailer and uh, entice you to listen to the next one and stick bundles of things together. But it's January and I'm busy, so here's a trailer. Goodbye! Looking back on that time, you might think Gallifrey was a world under siege. Though as far as anyone knew for certain, it was not. Our world had enjoyed many years of uninterrupted peace and harmony. And yet, within the Citadel's corridors, there were rumours whisperings that some nameless threat was about to return. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Gallifrey Intervention Earth. And so, it comes to pass. The fabric of the universe itself is now in jeopardy. And we have to somehow find a means of mending it. And by we, you mean Time Lords, yeah? Actually, what I really mean is us. What? I've been assigned to accompany you, Oh, oh no. No, 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 I don't do companions. Did no one tell you that? I have waited so very long now. Waiting in a universe of antimatter for a gateway back to my world to be opened. It's a black hole. A 
black hole growing larger by the moment. That anomaly is growing stronger every second. It's not just threatening Gallifrey. The entire universe could be at risk. The whole of reality. If we don't take action soon, the Soon, Narvan. You said so yourself. If we don't take action soon. But soon's not now, is it? And if it's a targeted attack of some kind? If it's an attack, then we do what we can to learn who is responsible. I am woven throughout the tapestry of time. have been. Of course, if Ace is responsible for the anomaly, that could also imply the involvement of the Doctor. No, this isn't his style. Given his reputation... He is a maverick, Taurus, not a psychopath. But it wouldn't be the first time he's acted so recklessly, not with the hand of Omega's... Ah! Sniper! Down, Mark! Some civilizations consider Omega to be the last. Or in some cultures, the end. And whilst this is now an end for me, it is also a new beginning. Omega shall be free! Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>